Okay, so we gave the title here for this morning's parsha inspired for this morning's shear inspired by the parsha Parsha's Korach. We gave the title of the prohibition of machlokes. The truth is, it probably could have been more appropriately titled the prohibitions of machlokes, and that's a part of what I'd like to look at: the fact that we really find a plethora of sources. We find perhaps too many sources telling us about the dangers and the prohibitions associated with quarreling, with behavior that represents machlokas. And the fact that there are so many sources, which itself may suggest some kind of a machlokas, is really just to emphasize the point that there's no question that there is a tremendous harm that comes along with negative machlokas, with negative quarreling. And it's it's just a question of what source in the Torah, or perhaps also in the Nevi'im and the Ksuvim, is dominant in instructing us about that harm and what lessons can we learn from the various sources. But the fact that there is a tremendous issue here, there is a tremendous concern, that's not in dispute. Everyone agrees that there are very weighty halachic issues behind the prohibition of Machlokas, the prohibitions of Machlokas, and we can glean a lot from looking at what is emphasized. And of course, this week's Parsha, Parsha's Korach, is one of the major places where this is emphasized by the content, by the narrative of the whole Parsha. And it's a cautionary tale, not only in what it displays through the narrative, through the story, but perhaps also in its actual commandment, because we do find included in the Parsha the phrase, and we must not be like Korach and his congregation. And the Gemara, towards the end of Masachas and Hedrin, on Daf Kuvyud, the Gemara interprets this to mean that over Belav. Whoever holds on will have to try to understand what that phrase itself means, but whoever gives strength, whoever holds on to a machlokas is in violation of a losase from this Pasik. Now there is some machlokas, there is some debate as to what to do with that Gemara. Does that Gemara really mean to say that there is an actual Isser that's derived from this Pasuk. There is some room to question that. The Rambam, for example, seems to understand that it's more of a prophecy that is telling us that in the future we won't be like Karach, and that the Gemara that has this language, calling it a violation of the Lav, is actually an Asmachta. There are some of the Moni HaMitzvos who do count this, the Rashi Ben Gabirol and others, who do count this as a lav. And uh, that itself is significant because, first of all, just to understand what the words mean. So it's noteworthy that it doesn't say whoever starts a fight. They call hamachzik b'machlokas. That suggests that even if there is an ongoing fight, but you give it more strength, you give it more power, you pour fuel on the fire so that the machlokas is going to continue with greater intensity, that that may itself be a violation of the law. And there are some who point to the context. read an article about this where he made this point that if you look at the context, so if we're told not to be like Korach, so then presumably we are told at the same time that we should be like Moshe. And here we find that Moshe made great efforts, great overtures to try to 
make peace and even willing to dispense with his own honor in order to try to reconcile, in order to try to quiet it down. So uh, presumably a part of this Isser is this correlate obligation to try to do whatever we can to try to make sure that we can make things more peaceful. It's also noteworthy that if we do see this as a source of the Isser, so the Sheiltus of Rav Chaigon, he understands it as kind of a preventative measure, that the issue is that once we allow people to engage in machlokasin and these kind of fights, especially they get very personal, so then that's going to lead to a violation of what certainly is a specific prohibition of the Torah. So there's a question here what machlokis means. So that question has to be answered on a couple levels. The word machlokis on the surface is going to mean a fight, is going to mean a dispute. But as far as what it means in the broader sense, that's a part of what we need to try to understand exactly what's included in this word machlokis, because we often use it in a more neutral and, in fact, a positive sense when we talk about learning in the base medrash, so we're very eager to find and to discuss differences of opinion, and we call that a machlokas also. So we have to understand exactly what kind of machlokas is good and what kind of machlokas is bad and what's in between. But here in this original context, we talk about a machlokas in the sense of behavior that is unnecessarily querulous and confrontational and looking to start problems. So here we find this prohibition associated with the behavior of Korach in this week's parasha. And that's what the Sheolta says. It could lead that if we allow this behavior to take place, it could lead to a violation of what we know is a specific prohibition in the Torah. And that's the prohibition of hatred. We're not supposed to carry animosity on a personal level towards others. And it's easy to understand and to relate to the concern that being involved in machlokas and this kind of behavior is likely to lead to that kind of a thinking, that kind of an attitude. And there's a comment that uh, Reuven Margolios in his Sefer Margolios Ayam, his commentary to Masafis and Hedrin, so he notes that this presumably then fits into a larger issue of the question of when the Torah itself gives us rules that are there to protect other rules in the Torah. Sometimes we think that's the job of the rabbis, that the rabbis made new rules in order to protect the existing rules of the Torah. But sometimes the Torah itself does it. And apparently this is an example that we're concerned about where machlokas could lead. And therefore, according to this understanding, if we have a prohibition of engaging in that kind of machlokas, it's because we're concerned of where it could take us to. And in that spirit, it's also noteworthy that the Ramban, in his understanding of this Isser, the Ramban, looking to the story specifically in the Parsha, thought it was more about attacking the institution of the Levia and the Kahuna, what we find Korach specifically challenging the particular structure of the Jewish community. So that is an attack on the system and it is heretical in nature. It challenges 
God's system. So wouldn't that seem to be the message if we say, and some of the contemporary Swarim on this topic suggest that that's actually the point, that yes, eventually the attacks of Korach get much more consequential as far as the message he's conveying, but it all starts from this attitude of Machlokas, the fact that people are looking to engage in fights for personal reasons that which comes out of that, the consequence of that is often far greater and creates damage in all different kinds of fronts. And the truth is, it's interesting because that actually draws a strong parallel and continuity to this past week's Parsha because we find a very similar dynamic in Parsha Shlach. In Parsha Shlach, the Gemara in Maseches Erechen tells us in interpreting a Pasuk in Shlach, that even though the Jews did all kinds of things that God got angry over the course of their time in the desert, but their fate was sealed because of Lashon Hara, because of the way they spoke, or specifically Lashon Hara about the land, the Diba Sa'aretz, and the Gemara itself reacts to that claim by noting that it sounds like there's more than that going on in Parsha Shlach. It sounds like the Miraglim were engaged really in Kfira, that they were denying God's ability to carry out his promises. They were heretical. They were denying fundamentals of the faith. So why is the Talmud assuming that their core transgression was actually the way they spoke, was actually Lashon Hara about the land? And the Talmud answers it by just pointing to the fact that the verses in the Parsha seem to highlight that as the cause of their punishment. But we could say that there's a similar structure here and there, that in Shlach and Korach you find the same thing, that there are actions and statements that seem to reflect heresy, that seem to deny core principles of the faith. But in both cases, they result from these kinds of transgressions. They result from speaking negatively and having a negative attitude, the Lashon Hara component that we find in Shlach, and this querulousness, this tendency to engage in conflict that Korach displays. So both of them are responsible for bringing about consequences that are even more severe in terms of heresy and in terms of all kinds of other consequences that flow from that. But in both cases, it highlights just how severe these character traits are the character trait of negativity in speech and the character trait of being confrontational and always looking for a fight. In both cases, they're able to inflict damage that is wide and broad and deep. So if we are going to assume that there is a lesson to be derived from Korach specifically, so then we could get a little bit more information about what was going on there by looking at a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. Uh, the Mishnah tells us that there is a distinction between two different kinds of machlokas. Like I mentioned before, we in the base Medrash, we know we talk about machlokas all the time and we're very happy about it. We look for it and we're very happy to analyze it and to discuss it and to try to understand it. And it helps bring clarity to our learning. So the Mishnah says there's a distinction between a machlokas l'shem shamayim and a machlokas shalol l'shem shamayim. There's a machlokas that is for the sake of heaven, that is nobly intentioned, and then there's a machlokas that is not for the sake of heaven, that is not for l'shem shamayim, is not nobly intentioned. And apparently one is good and one is bad. A machlokas that is l'shem shamayim is apparently good, 
And the machlokas, that's not for the sake of heaven, is to be criticized. I say apparently good, apparently bad. It's interesting, the specific language that the Mishnah has is that a machlokas, that's the shem shamayim, so full of hiskayim. That's going to endure. While a machlokas, that's shalol shem shamayim, so full hibatel. That's not going to endure. That's going to fall apart. So that's presumably a way of saying one is good and one is bad. The Kutzke Rebbe, who is famous for his uh, cynical take, perhaps his uh, sharp take on certain things, so he had a comment which puts it in the other direction, which also, I think, resonates with a lot of our experience. It says, Machlokus l'shem shamayim sofol l'shkayim. It means that when somebody thinks that the fight that they're having is l'shem shamayim, when somebody thinks that it's inspired by noble motives, never going to end. It'll go on forever. The machlokas is always going to continue because if you think you're L'Shem Shemayim, so then you're never going to let it go. But the machlokas Shalom L'Shem Shemayim, if you understand that you're not motivated by such noble intentions, so then so hopefully Batel will eventually let it drop. So that's an unusual take, even though it resonates perhaps with our experience. But the most assume that the Mishnah is saying that L'Shem Shemayim is good and Shalom L'Shem Shemayim is bad, but it's a very correct insight that the opposite could also be true in a different sense of interpretation, that when we think we're L'shem Shemayim, it keeps it going forever, and when we realize that we're not L'shem Shemayim, so then that allows the Machlokas to someday subside. But the positive interpretation that the Mishnah is suggesting on the Pshat level is that the idea of a Machlokas enduring means that it's about something meaningful, that it's about ideas rather than people. So therefore, it's still going to be relevant 100 years, 200 years, 300 years later, because it's about something of significance, not about personalities. It's not about side considerations. It's about something of actual meaning and significance. So that's going to be important and that's going to last. While a machlokis, that's not really about the issues, but it's about the personalities. It's about each one having a desire to somehow get ahead by knocking down the other. So then that only lasts as long as the people do. But if it's uh, about them, it's not going to have any relevance to later generations. It's not going to have any meaning. So in any event, the Mishnah gives examples of each of these categories. So the Mishnah says, what's an example of a machlokas? That's the good kind, l'shem shamayim. That's like Beisil and Beishamayim. They have a machlokas that represents that which is nobly intentioned. While a machlokas that's shalom shem shamayim, that is kikorach va'adaso. That is like Korach and his congregation. So that is actually very instructive in helping us to understand what we're talking about here. That if the Torah is telling us in this week's parsha, don't be like Korach, and the Gemara in Sanhedrin is telling us that means don't engage in machlokas. So then we put it together with this Mishnah to understand that the machlokas of Korach is understood to be a machlokas shalom l'shem shamayim, while a machlokas that is l'shem shamayim, that is similar to hill and shamay, based hill and be shamay. So that is something which is in a whole different category. And that is justified and perhaps even valued. So I have to try to figure out still what those words mean. On one level, it could be just about stated intent. Are you trying to uncover the truth or are you pursuing some personal goal? Or it could also be about other clues 
that show because presumably everyone will tell you that their machlokas is l'shem shemayim. Everyone thinks that that's the case. So if you're going to ask anyone what's driving them, and maybe even they're able to tell themselves that their motivation is always for the sake of heaven, even if it's not 100% true. So sometimes we have to look to other clues. So it could be, for example, by highlighting the Phil and Beishamai, this is maybe a reference to a Gemara in Yuvamos, who's a Dafyomi now already a couple months ago, but towards the beginning of Masechus Yuvamos. So the Gemara there talks about a very consequential dispute between Beis Hill and Beis Shammai that affects areas of personal status and of marriage issues that are very, very significant for their implications in society. And yet there, the Gemara also wants to highlight that they treated each other with respect and harmony in their personal interactions and were even able to intermarry despite the fact that they had various varying opinions as to the rules of marriage and the like. They were able to work together in a harmonious fashion. And it could be that that's significant in understanding. So we can't necessarily only look to stated motivation because we often have complex motivations. But the fact that they were able to treat each other with respect and harmony outside the context of their dispute, maybe that's significant as a clue as to what exactly tells us which category it's in. And that when it comes to a machlokas, shalom v'shem shamayim, so we have the inverse idea that we can also look to how people are treating each other. And when we find that the treatment is ad hominem, maybe even in the context of the disputation, but certainly outside the context of the disputation. So that might be an indication that there's something else at play. And it's also noteworthy that many, many of the mafarshim on Perkyavos all note the same interesting aspect of the language here, that there's a lack of parallelism. Because when we talk about the good machlokas, the machlokas, the shem shamayim, so how is that represented? How is that exemplified? You have Beisilo and you have Beishamim. There's two sides. And they talk about the machlokas, shalom shamayim. So how is that conveyed in the Mishnah? What's the example of that? Korach and what? So you would think if it's going to be parallel, it should say Korach v'Moshe. But the language, the Mishnah is Korach v'Adaso. So why is it not parallel? Why is it only telling us one side of the dispute over there? So many, many, many Mepharshim suggest, it's an idea that you just find again and again, that the Mishnah is intentionally having this lack of parallelism. It's meant to convey that even within Korach's camp, everyone had his own motives. So they were at odds with each other. They weren't necessarily all rallying behind the cause, but they all had their own personal motivations. So there was a machlokas internally, and that that's also a clue. The fact that they weren't really together, they weren't really united. So that also shows us something that each was pursuing a personal motivation. And it wasn't something that was actually inspired by the content. And that's also very interesting to note that there's a difference sometimes when people get together for a cause, sometimes it's because they are all actually united. They all do feel a allegiance to a certain cause that they all want to get together and advocate. And sometimes it's an alliance. 
And sometimes people are coming together because maybe they have a goal that they're each seeking to pursue and they recognize that the other parties there are able to help them pursue that goal, but they're not really together. It's an alliance for this purpose, but there isn't actual unity among them. And it's interesting. We like uh, singing the song about when the Torah was given, Rashi says it was Kiisha Chad Chad, noting the singular language in the Pasuk there. But what we don't always recognize is that when the Mitzrim were chasing after the Jews, so Rashi has a comment that sounds the same, also noting singular language, where it says, So it sounds like if we're so proud of by Harsinai, that we were as one, as one person with one heart, so then why can't the same thing be said about the Egyptians when they were chasing after the Jews? So Rav Hutner has an essay about this in one of his Pachid Yitzchak volumes, where he notes that the order is very significant, that the Jews, it says, Ki Echad, we were united, and because we were united, Ki Echad, we were as one, we were able to pursue a common goal, Echad. we had one intent, that we were able to approach together as a united whole. While the Mitzrim, they were really united in that sense. They had one goal. They all wanted to chase after the Jews. So they were Belevachad. And because of the Belevachad, so then they came together to pursue that goal. They acted as one unit to pursue their common enemy. But they didn't have the unity that we are so proud of in the context of Matan Torah. So apparently that's the case also when it comes to Korach and his team that they weren't even united amongst themselves. And that's itself an indication of the nature of what was going on. And that's perhaps also relevant to understanding what we mean when we say that it's a machlok shalol Hashem Shemayim. There are also some who pick up on the language in a different way, and they say there's another reason why the Mishnah doesn't say Korach v'Moshe, the same way we could talk about Beisil and Beishamai, and that's because Moshe was not really a party to it. Moshe was just being attacked, and as we noted before, Moshe tried to do what he could to try to make the machlokas calm down. So it's not fair to say it's machlokas karach for Moshe. It's really a machlokas of karach against Moshe. So therefore, leaving him out of it makes sense. And that's perhaps a part of the message as well. Now, there is a comment from Nassim Gestetner. There was a great postdoc from Bnei Brak in his Sefer on Chumash. He has a comment in the beginning of the parsha that the Parsha identifies Korach at the very beginning and goes back a few generations with his lineage. But it stops before Yaakov. doesn't mention that he was descended from Yaakov. And Chazal tell us that this is because Yaakov up in Shemayim said he doesn't want to be connected with Machlokas. And one could ask that the truth is we can figure it out. We can do the math. We know where Levi came from. We know that he was descended from Yaakov. And the Pasuk Devrehiyamim does list all the lineage back to Yaakov. So what does it help that we're kind of protecting Yaakov by leaving his name out? But all of us know that Korach was descended from Yaakov anyway. So what does it help to leave him out? So he writes that sometimes when people get involved in a machlokas, so they wrap themselves in the flag and they 
tell themselves and they tell others that it's not about me. I'm fighting for the honor of my ancestors. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be involved in this fight, but I have to stand up for the covet of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, whatever it is. So Yaakov responds to that. Leave me out of it. This is your fight. You want to get involved in this machlokas? That's because you have your own personal motives, but to invoke my name in that context and to say that this is what's motivating you, that is not the case and I don't want to be a part of it. So there is a lot of commentary on this language of being like Korach. And it's particularly significant, especially if that is the source of the Isser. And to put these three sources together, the Pasuk of Aliyah Kikarach Vadaso, the Gemara statement that that means there's a prohibition and the Mishnah in Perkyavos telling us that the Machlokas specifically of Korach is a Machlokas Shalol Hashem Shemayim. So all of that translates then into an Isser to engage and to wage a war that is not Lashem Shemayim. While the Machlokas that we are so eager to address in the base Medrash, when we look for differences of opinion, in halachic matters or in matters of interpretation. And we kind of relish that in helping us to understand more deeply the topics that we are looking for. So presumably that's an example of a machlokas l'shem shamayim. But it's interesting to note that there are many exhortations you can find in the literature that suggest that we are so complicated nowadays uh, that the Behuda has a truth about this. And others, they say that nowadays we have such mixed motivations, we have to really be careful, even of what we think is a machlokas, the shame shabayim, and the machlokas that would seem to fall into that category of noble intentions. So often it's not the case, and there's some who even go so far as to write that we don't have that anymore nowadays, and that maybe the Mishnah talks about Basil and Beishamai and Hill and Shammai in order to convey to us that there have to be a certain has to be a certain level, a certain stature in order to be able to carry out such a dispute, and we don't have that anymore nowadays. So even if that's the case, as far as trying to keep us aware of the complexity of our own motives, Clearly, we do have to assume that on some level there is such a thing as a machlokas l'shem shamayim, and that we do need to clarify points of halacha and philosophy and interpretation that does require us to be able to engage in these kinds of disputes. But we are highlighting for ourselves the danger that sometimes is involved and that we have to be very, very careful to make sure that these kinds of arguments do stay focused and maintain their character of being l'shem shamayim and don't wade don't don't wade into korach territory which is always on the surface and always posing a risk so all of that is if we assume that this is the guiding pasuk here that this is the dominant text telling us we shouldn't engage in machlokas because of korach so one way or another it certainly has educational messages for us but as we noted there is some question as to whether that is actually the halachic source is that telling us it's really an isa we noted earlier that the rambam understood it to be an asmachta the Ramban Suad is referring to something else. So it's also important to note that there are a number of other psukim that are also invoked in telling us about the prohibition of Machlok. At some point to a Pasuk in Sefer Shmos and Parach of Gimel, we find the language, Losane al-Riv, Lintos Lahatos. There the Torah is talking about how we should follow the majority, but it has this language of losana al-riv, where riv is a quarrel, we shouldn't 
respond to a quarrel. And the Rashi bin Gabirol understands this in the same spirit as a Pasuk in Mishlei, where you have the language, lo l'riv maher, and that the connotation is that we shouldn't be quick to jump in to any kind of a, a dispute. And he has the phrase there that if you don't have fuel on the fire, you don't have wood on the fire, so the fire eventually goes out. But there are people who always want to jump in and who are looking to stir things up further. So then that's going to cause a problem. And that's what that Pasuk is conveying, that that's another verse in the Torah telling us that we shouldn't be like that. Uh, there's also some who point out the Torah also has a commandment, the Karasa Alel Shalom. And that's talking really specifically when there is a state of war, a state of active fighting with weapons between the Jews and others. And we're told that there should be an initiative towards peace, that we should try to avoid the war. But there are some who understand that it's not only in that context. It's not only when you're fighting with weapons against enemies, but even internally when we're not fighting with weapons, but we mean that we're looking to preserve harmony overall. So that's also included in this intent of the Pasuk, that we should seek to have a harmonious environment to whatever extent we can. There's also a fascinating comment of the Shla, which is a little more specific, that in the beginning of Parshas Vayakel, so we read regarding Shabbos, the Torah says, Lo that we shouldn't allow fire to burn in our households on Shabbos, which on the surface is a reference to the prohibition of kindling fire on Shabbos, of the, of the Malacha of Havara. And the Gemara has a hard time with this because in general, the Malachos, the 39 Malachos, are not identified specifically in the Torah. We have methods of figuring out. We look to the Mishkan. We figure out what the 39 Malachos are. For the most part, they're not identified one by one. So the Gemara, in a few places, tries to figure out why is it that Havara is singled out? Why is the Torah identifying this Malacha and not other Malachos? So there are a few answers. The Gemara has an answer. The Gemara has a Machlokas, but the answer is, and the Amban has another approach. But the Shla understands it, that it's referring to emotional fire, that in addition to whatever prohibitions we have overall of having disputes that are not necessary of Machlokas, on Shabbos, it takes on a whole different level. Then on Shabbos, there is an obligation of maintaining harmony. And maybe that's also reflected by the fact that we have an obligation of Shabbos candles. And the Gemara says that there is great priority given to having light in the house, the Shabbos candles, even though it's a rabbinic enactment, but it's an enactment that takes on great significance. The Talmud says that even when it comes to Hanukkah candles, which we consider to be extremely important because Hanukkah candles publicize the miracle of Hanukkah, Persumanisa is a value that we cherish and we're told to prioritize Persumanisa over many other things. But the Gemara says, as much as that's true, Shabbos candles are even more important. As the commentaries explain, the assumption is you were lighting the Hanukkah candles outside and it didn't help have light in your household, while Shabbos candles are lit inside. So you have light in the house because you have Shabbos candles lit. So if you only had one candle in that context, the Gemara was telling us that better to light it inside the house so you will have illumination inside the house 
even more than that important mitzvah of Hanukkah candles outside the house. And the Gemara says that that's because of Shlom Beso, that the assumption is that you're going to have a more peaceful household if you have light on in the house. So some of the commentaries explain that if it's dark in the house, so then that tends to ratchet up the tensions and that people are going to be tripping over each other and they're not going to see what's going on and they're going to get in each other's way. And that has a ripple effect on everything else. People are on edge because they can't see where they're going and they're tripping and they're running into each other. And that tends to make the whole household environment more tense. So therefore, in order to prevent that, so it's crucial that we have light in the household. And that's so important. It's even more important than the idea of Persumenisa that's associated with the Hanukkah candles. So if that's really the reason some of the commentaries ask, so then why is that only Friday night? That could be true any night of the week. Maybe we should say that if we have to choose between having light inside the house or having the light outside the house, that doesn't help a see inside the house. So then even on a Tuesday night, it should be more important that we should have lights in the house. It's not something that's true only Friday night. And the truth is there are some who actually read the Gemara that way and say, yeah, it's not just about Friday night candles. Any night of the week, it is crucial to be able to see so that you're not going to trip over each other. And that's even more important than Hanukkah candles. But we generally assume it's talking about Friday night candles, even though it's not obvious from the language of the Gemara. And that leaves us with a question. So if it's a concern that could have been relevant all week long, so why is it only talking about Friday night candles? So what seems to emerge is that, yes, it's a concern all the time. But the rabbis made a specific enactment that Shabbos, Friday night, we have to make sure that we have a peaceful environment. It's a good idea to have illumination and to avoid all areas of conflict as much as you can all the time. But Friday night, we're especially concerned. So the rabbis went out of their way to make an enactment. Friday night, we have to have Shabbos candles. And that's so important. It's even more important than the publicizing of the Hanukkah miracle. So that idea could dovetail with what the Shlah is saying, that the Torah itself, if he's understanding correctly, goes out of its way to say Machlokas is a problem all the time, but Shabbos there is a particular focus. It's going to really shatter the whole idea of what Shabbos is about if we allow there to be conflict in the household, and therefore we're emphasizing There are a few other references in the Torah and elsewhere that are also invoked, and one is from Tehillim, that's the well-known Pasuk of Bake Shalom Veradfehu, and we're told that we have to seek out Shalom and chase after it. So that's not in the Chumash itself, that's from Tehillim, but we have a concept of mitzvos medivrei Kabbalah, that sometimes there are mitzvos that are included in Scripture, but not in Chumash. So they're in Psukim, but Psukim that are in Nach, in Nevi'im and Ksuvim, and the Gemara calls that divrei Kabbalah, linked to with mysticism, but these are things that we know from tradition. And many understand that there's a tremendous weight to those ideas, that even though we wouldn't call it straight out a mitzvah in HaTorah, it's not in the Chumash itself, and sometimes we're referring to man-made institutions, such as, such as uh, let's say, reading the Megillah, for example, or fasting on the fast days, which on the surface are dinim drabanan, they were instituted by the rabbis, but they are mentioned or alluded to in verses in Nach. So the Gemara calls that divrei Kabbalah, and it's many, many understand that divrei Kabbalah, as far as their 
authority and their weight are treated like divrei Torah. So here the Sefer Haredim writes that the Pasuk Bakir Shalom who is in that category, that that is a mitzvah in divrei Kabbalah, it's treated like a mitzvah in HaTorah, that we have to seek after peace and chase after it. And the Medrash has a comment that focuses on the strong language here that the Medrash writes that when it comes to other mitzvos, so we don't find this language of bakesh and radfehu, that we have to seek it out and chase after it. If the mitzvah is in front of us, so then we have to perform it, then we have an obligation. But if the mitzvah is not in front of us, so then we don't have an obligation to chase after it. There was a whole discussion this year is a Shemitah year. So there were those who proposed in the past that even people who don't live in the land of Israel should buy land in Israel so that they'll be able to observe Shemitah by not working this land that they acquire for that purpose. And it's a part of the whole discussion. So do we have an obligation to run after mitzvot that are not presenting to us right now? They're not in front of us right now. You don't have any land in Israel, so Shemitah is not applicable to you. And maybe we should have an obligation to try to acquire land in order to do that. So that was the whole discussion. But here the Medrash seems to be addressing that, saying that when it comes to mitzvahs in general, we don't have an obligation to chase after them. But when it comes to Shalom, so we have this language, Bake Shalom Verfeyu, that it has to actively be sought and we have to chase after it. Interestingly enough, it's an observation that was made both by the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Satmar Rebbe, that they understood that Bake Shalom Verfeyu means that there is an obligation to go above and beyond and to seek out Shalom even when it isn't there, and that transcends the obligation that we have by mitzvot as a whole to kind of import it, even where it isn't there otherwise. There's a sefer called Zivchei Shlomo that had a comment based on this, where he notes that when it comes to mitzvot, so we have 613 mitzvot, but none of us are commanded by all of them. There are mitzvot that only apply at certain times to certain people in certain contexts. There's no one person who is subject to all 613 mitzvot. So none of us has by ourselves the ability to fulfill all 613 mitzvot. So how do we connect to all of Torah if that's the case? If none of us have the ability to fulfill all the mitzvot. So the answer is because we're a part of Klal Yisrael, we're a part of the unity and the historical and contemporary unity of the Jewish people. So together we're a part of this entity that observes all 613 mitzvot. But that requires that we actually feel that togetherness. We have to have shalom. We have to have harmony amongst ourselves so that that can be the case. So he suggests that that's the understanding. We're not told to seek after mitzvot. We don't have to chase after mitzvot that are not relevant to us because we're a part of a unified Kali Yisrael that is performing all of the mitzvot. But we do have to maintain that unity in order to be able to make that claim. So shalom, that we have to chase after. The specific mitzvot we don't have to chase after as much. But the idea of shalom that's what the Pasuk is telling us, that we have to actively seek. So those are also invoked in this context of the obligation to maintain harmony. There's another very significant Pasuk that we'll read about in a few weeks. Uh, I want to get to how much time more time do we have? Uh, by sure. I think we're actually... Okay, so I don't want to cause my focus by going over time, but uh, some important points just to note, they'll say in the speed round. So the implications of these sources are very significant. And uh, there is a fascinating discussion relating to this week's parsha that uh, Talmud Yerushalmi suggests that one could even say Lashon Hara about those who 
are acting like Korach in order specifically to quiet down the Machlokes. And there's a big discussion how exactly that applies and whether that's a reflection of the fact that they are sinning by nature or is it a particular idea that is only designed in order to quiet the Machlokes. And the Chafetz Chaim suggests that it's in its own category because even though somebody who engages in this kind of behavior is sinning, but it's a sin that different in nature from all other sins because by its very nature those who are engaging in this kind of transgression are of the impression that they are doing it for the right reasons and therefore it makes it fundamentally distinct from other kinds of avarice and has to be addressed differently but we find also the Talmud says that we can erase God's name in order to maintain the peace and there's a big discussion as to what the scope of that is does that mean to include other kinds of actions that are normally prohibited or is that a reflection specifically of the fact that God's name is Shalom and therefore to preserve the Shalom we can erase the name of God which is Shalom but it's not necessarily something we can extrapolate for our, to other things and we know the Talmud also says this was a Gemara Nivamas was Dafiomi a little more recently and not still a month or two ago but the Gemara says that there is a license under certain circumstances to kind of stretch the truth in order to maintain the peace. So we find all of these discussed as far as what the implications are of there being a prohibition of Machlokes, and they are very significant, but we should also note that in a few weeks we'll read Parshas A, and there's a prohibition in Parshas A that the Torah tells us Los is go to do, which the simple interpretation means that we're not supposed to cut ourselves, that that was what people used to do in grief when they were anguished over a loss. They would cut their skin, and the Torah says we're not allowed to do that. That's not how we react to things. So Los is go to do, but the Gemara Nivamos, again, Dafiomi from the beginning. So the Gemara Nivamos there, first parak, the Gemara understands that the extra dollar, it could have been lo sigodu, so the language of lo sigodu has extra letters, and the Gemara understands that to mean that we should not engage in factionalism, lo seishu agudos agudos, we shouldn't have different groups doing different things, and it's specifically applied to halachic practice, that to have different types of halachic practice within Aishat, that it's visible, that there are different things going on, that creates a problem, and it was an interesting debate as to why that is. So according to Rashi, Rashi in his commentary on the Gemara, Rashi says, we don't want it to look like there are two Torahs. We don't want it to look like there are two different religions that are being followed here at the same time. And some understand that to be a concern of Echul Hashem, that it's going to reflect badly on God himself. While others, the Rambam and the Sefer Achimach, they understand that this is a prohibition of Machlokes, that we're afraid it's going to lead to people fighting. And therefore, we shouldn't have differences in practice that could provoke such kind of behavior. And that was a big discussion as to which interpretation is dominant here. And among the issues that were impacted is the question has a lot of relevance. So this prohibition of having different practices, does it apply to minhagim also? Does it apply only to actual law? Or what about customs? Can you have different customs being observed in the same setting where people can see? Is that also a problem of losis go to do? So that it Siv has a truth about this and others have truths about this and they assume that it relates to this issue that if we're worried about the appearance of two Torahs, so we know that when it comes to custom, there are different customs that doesn't necessarily create the impression that the Torah is split. But when it's a concern of fighting, so we also know that unfortunately people can fight about anything, and that even when it comes to an issue that's not actually about law, but is more about custom, there is the potential for 
confrontation and unpleasantness, and we have to constantly be aware of that and to know how to manage that. And there are some who suggest that if we look at this Pasuk, what is go to do as the key source, even though we had so many other options that we've talked about over these past few minutes, that that's coming to tell us that you could have thought that, yes, I shouldn't fight about mundane manners, but when it comes to issues of halacha, so then, okay, we have to wage whatever war is necessary and stand up for whatever we think is the correct interpretation, even if it means that there's going to be conflict that arises from that. And apparently it's not so simple. Apparently that even in that area, even when we're talking about our religious obligations, we still have this mandate of losus go to do, and that that tells us that we have to maintain this sensitivity, even even in that context. So what we're left with, again, I don't want to cause any kind of machlokas by going over time. So I'll just sum up that our major takeaway from all of this is that we have an abundance of sources in the Torah one or the other may be the dominant source, but we have an abundance of sources addressing this question of Machlokas, and we have the narrative in this week's parsha, which really brings the point home and may or may not itself be the source, but altogether... The message is that there is great danger that comes from conflict and that if we are able to internalize that consideration, even when we believe that we're standing up for a good cause, even when we believe that we have justified motivations, and it may indeed be the case, but at the same time, the fear of a dangerous machlokas always looms large, and a major message that emerges from all of this and from this week's parish and everything that surrounds it is that we should internalize that concern and make sure that all of our actions and all of our speech reflects the desire for shalom, and that we know the Gemara tells us that the ultimate Shalom is the rescue from Gullus, and as we approach this period of the three weeks, we should be able to bring about a state of Shalom, and the Pasuk in Zechariah tells us that when we have Shalom, that's how the Gemara understands the Pasuk in Zechariah, that when we have actual Shalom, so then these fast days that at the moment are observed with tightness and mourning, they will be celebrated as holidays May it be his will that that soon be the case.